Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Let's just talk football, mate. <laughs> that was a terrible, terrible it was a, That was exactly what you sounded like. It is Monday, which means it's time for the front three. Adam here alongside Chris Hennage. Evening. And Nico Morales as well. How you doing, mate? That is just don't even try it, Nico. Don't embarrass <laughs> sorry. yourself. Sorry about that. Uh, guys, let's move on swiftly from that to talk about football. <laughs> so much football to talk about. Uh, not least of which Group B, Group A, that have been decided today. We know who's going through and in what order. In the round of 16, uh, we do have to start with a controversy tonight. The VAR controversy, the VAR bullshit, as Alan Shearer eloquently put it tonight. One uh, all, it finished between Iran and Portugal, uh, defining that Portugal would finish second in Group B behind Spain, who had their own VAR controversy. Um, but we do have to talk about that Portugal game. It was 1-0. Ricardo Caresma with perhaps the finish, perhaps the goal of the tournament so far. Beautiful outside of the boot finish. It looked like that was what would separate the two teams. But Iran, in the closing stages, rewarded, I think it's fair to say, a controversial penalty via VAR. Uh, what did you make of this one? Was it a penalty? What, what was going on? I'll, t- I'll take this bullet. I mean, I don't know. I, I feel like I didn't really was, see the there's game. No way it's I... There's no way it's penalty. The cross comes in. It's headed down. <laughs> Onto uh, onto Cedric's arm, but it's not a deliberate handball, is it? I don't think so. But then again, then you know you can make the argument that within the context of the rules, you can say that his hand is in an unnatural position, but then you can also say it is in an unnatural position because he was jumping. So I don't. I mean, I don't know. I I I, I think this is like this is exemplary of the larger point about VAR, which is that. There are people out there who are saying because of this decision and because of other decisions that maybe they look at unfavorably or favorably depending on which side of the coin they happen to land on. I think there is an expectation that VAR would fix everything. No decision would ever be incorrect ever again and that, you know, it's going to be a perfect system from now on. And that's just even with VAR, unless unless you enter a world where, you know, we go Westworld with it. And every decision, every single data point, every time a player touches the ball is automated, like where it's literally like a like FIFA, and we and all that is fed into a computer. The decisions are not going to be correct. So the the expectation that VAR is going to make this significantly better is, I think, is wrong. So let's just remember that. But I think as a net positive, regardless of this decision, the VAR is a net positive. That's all I really want to push across. Well, that's the thing. I mean, at the end of the day, Chris. <laughs> No matter VAR, its implication being that it's not quite that every single decision is going to be, as as Nico says, it's not going to be black and white. It still is, at the end of the day, down to the interpretation of the referee. So this incident where he's called for a handball, uh, be it a deliberate handball we've seen, be it that his, his arm being an unnatural decision, in an, sorry, in an unnatural position, is still at the discretion of the referee, right? Yes, and I think... Actually, in listening to the commentary on the BBC tonight, there was a point made unintentionally in my eyes, which was uh, the review for Spain's second 
which we will come on to, obviously. Mm. It was said that the reason that they can review offsides is because offsides is a definitive fact. You either are or you are not offside. Like, it's, it's black and white. It's not dance interpretation. I'm inclined to think that that's where penalty decisions ultimately fall down because there is a degree of interpretation. Right. And actually, if we take the Ronaldo penalty as an example, that sequence of play where he runs in it's not given any context. And what I mean by that is it's not given the context of the seconds before and the seconds afterwards. So actually, when I saw that in real time, I thought, you know what, he hasn't actually got control of the ball here. So in that instance, I'm inclined to think it's not a penalty because he, he doesn't actually, as I say, have control of the ball. And that's where I think VAR is the problem, is that it takes his decision and and just trims the fat of the whole situation off. So you're going to think, okay, well, you know, he's touched there, the ball's here. Yeah, this is obviously a penalty, but there's absolutely no conclusive evidence to that fact, and that's why I think it's an issue. Yeah, this is the thing, you know, uh, people seem to be up in arms because they don't think it's a deliberate handball. Uh, does it need to be deliberate to be a handball? We're talking about being in an unnatural position. It seemed uh, maybe you could argue that, and that would be the referee's interpretation. There's more controversy because... Early in the game, Ronaldo perhaps should have seen a second yellow. It looked like an elbow. That wasn't referred to a VAR uh, decision. Uh, Carlos Quiroz coming out and then sort of suggesting that perhaps if the if the forward had been less high profile, if it wasn't Ronaldo who was guilty of that crime, he may have seen a red card. But again, it's not necessarily a clear and obvious error which VAR is supposed to be able to rectify, that it's supposed to be able to review. It feels, Nico, like there's almost a little bit of a misunderstanding from the general public about what VAR is supposed to do and how it's supposed to work. And of course, we're still seeing its implementation. We're still seeing those teething problems where it takes a while for these decisions to happen where the crowd in the stadium and the crowd watch on TV aren't sure what's happening and you're always going to get this this controversy. You're always going to get this frustration. I think the the point about you know people waiting is probably fine and something that I'm okay with because as long as you you're coming to the correct decision, then I think you have to wait for that. You don't want to rush the decision and then be wrong on the thing that you're supposed to be objectively right about, right? So that part is okay. But yeah, I think this is, um, there was some analytics people making some interesting points, which is uh, saying before, not every decision is going to be correct. And I think Chris rightly kind of points to the the difference in decisions between like offside, which correct or incorrect. You can't be both, whereas there is a gray area for penalty decisions and even refereeing decisions. Like you were saying there, I remember there was a there was an incident in uh, Serie A where they have been using VAR for the past season. You know, a lot of people felt Pjanic, I think, in one of the penultimate games of um, of the Serie A season, felt like he should have probably gotten a second yellow. So stuff like that. There's gray areas, and it kind of comes down to, as you mentioned before, the discretion of the referee. Mm. And so with that, I think. There was some analytics people making the astute points that, you know, VAR is going to change how we view fouls, how fouls are called. And maybe at some point we we look at it and say, OK, maybe some of the rules need to be rewritten now that we, we have uh, video assistant referee. Now we have now that we have the ability to go back and make the correct decisions in pivotal moments, because, you know, a second yellow to a red is pivotal. You know, a, a free kick in a certain position can be pivotal, whatever. Now that we have those things, we can maybe further or, you know, make the make the gray area smaller and smaller. I don't think they're ever going to not exist. They're, no. they're always going to be there. But I think now that we have that technology, now that we have the ability to go back, we can make some of the the language in the game and the rules a little bit clearer so that when we can go back to those decisions, decisions, we have the rule book to kind of fall back on and say, okay, this is what we should do. And I think that's probably the advantage is that we add a little bit more rules, we add a little bit of clarity, and the gray areas start to recede a little bit. Mm, I mean, I'm all for it. I mean, this was a controversial decision. It is open to interpretation. It meant in the end, Iran were awarded a penalty which they scored, led to a draw, which means Portugal finished second in Group B, Spain finishing top, of course, after a tall draw against Morocco, where we saw the perfect use of VAR, uh, Iago Aspas scoring that equaliser in the dying minutes. It was chalked off for an offside. The referee reviews it via VAR, and correctly, the decision is overturned. He was onside upon review. Um, they finished top of the group anyway, Nico. For you, is that 
deserved. Yeah, I think they were the most consistent ones. They had, as I kind of wrote about for the ringer, you know, these bigger teams face a stylistic advantage when they come up against some of these smaller teams and teams like Iran and, and some of the other guys that they face. I mean, obviously, Portugal aren't necessarily a small team, but they have that Spain have that disadvantage of going up against teams that are just going to pack it in. Um, I think Morocco did a lot better of a job than uh, than Iran did in terms of threatening them and breaking up their play. Obviously, they scored two goals, but if you look at sort of the expected goals of it, Spain des- are deserved winners on the night, and although they drew, I think they've been probably the most consistent team in that group. So, yeah, I think they they probably deserve to have that top spot because, as you were saying, and that's why the, the decisions in that other game are so important, as good as Russia have been, Uruguay showed them off today, and I think Spain have the capability to do so, and they will be facing Russia in the next round as opposed to, um, what is the other team? As opposed to your guy, who are a very good team. So I think, uh, I think, I think that's, they, they deserve that. They deserve to have sort of that, maybe that easier game in the in the next round. So you fancy their chances against Russia? Do you think they're going to face any threat? I mean, obviously in their final game, Russia did look so impressive compared to the opening two fixtures. So you'd be confident Spain are going to go through here to the quarterfinals? Um, yeah, I'm pretty confident. I think also that, and I think we'll probably get onto this in a little bit, but there is some concern that I have in, in, in sort of uh, the doping scandal that has been talked about with Russia. But yeah, as, as a whole, I think that is the team that you want to face because Uruguay are never going to be the offensive team against Spain. And I think they have a more of a possibility with Suarez, with Cavani, with how they structure their midfield with ben, Bentancur and Torreya. They have more of a possibility to hurt Spain than Russia do, who I think had the advantage of playing in a not a variety of ways, but maybe a little bit more flexible in a defensive sense in the group stages where they said, okay, let's see what we can get here and there. Whereas, you know, it's the knockout phases, it's one game. Um, and they have to, they have to be forced into that defensive style that I think Spain can ultimately break down. Mm, it was such an impressive start for Russia, of course, Chris, but they were beaten three nil by Uruguay today after going a man down an easy victory, an easy victory. For Uruguay, um, obviously now set to face Portugal in a round of 16. Who would you be backing in that fixture, Chris? Ooh, it's a, it's a difficult because I, I think Nico's right. I don't think Uruguay are going to take the the bull by the horns, if you will, and try to dictate possession. I think, if anything, you'll probably see what they try and did against Russia and use that 3-5-2, be quite focused on counterattacks, opening up the space. Um by inviting on a little bit of pressure with the ball. Portugal, I think, have found the best success by doing that as well. Um, we saw that against Spain. They, they seem to prefer being that underdog role. And you go back to 2016, that was really, I would argue, how they made their way to to the Euro 2016 summit. Um, it was by being the undercard and counter-punching. Um, so the one thing I would say is, I haven't seen anything from Uruguay this tournament that's made me think, wow, this is a really good quality team. I think the style that they played today um, and the formation, I was talking to Nico about this as the game was going on, I think it fits their team and their squad perfectly or about as good as you're going to for that squad because it it negates the fact they don't have any quality traditional wingers. Um, But even then, like they made kind of hard work of it against a a 10-man Russia side that really is is lacking in even more quality. Um, So that's one of those moments where I look at it and and my gut tells me right now that Ronaldo kind of steps up, drives them forward. And and even tonight, you know, as as much as you want to poke holes through Portugal, they've still got charisma, they've still got Ronaldo, they've still got quality in their ranks that has performed during this tournament. That's the important caveat I think I should stress is that Portugal have actually shown up during this tournament quite well, whereas I think Uruguay have got the job done and I almost feel bad criticising them but I haven't been convinced by them. So I'm going to need to see a, a bit of a ramp in quality for that to happen. Uh, the other fixture today, of course, was Saudi Arabia against Egypt. Dead rubber in Group A. Saudi Arabia winning in the end. Uh, Mohamed Salah scoring again for Egypt. Um, and also we saw the Egypt goalkeeper uh, become the oldest ever player to feature in a World Cup match. SM Al Hadari, 45 years old, uh, saving a penalty as well from Saudi Arabia. Couldn't avoid defeat, of course. Um, there is some controversy surrounding this Egypt team, Nico. I'm not sure if you've heard about this. Mohamed Salah potentially going to retire now after this match. His subdued celebration after his goal against Saudi Arabia, causing some concern 
among Egyptian fans because of the dispute between the star player and the Egyptian FA. Yeah, it's strange. Um, I hadn't known about that. I I don't know anything about the the controversy between him and the Egyptian FA, but yeah, it'd be a surprising one. I think the, the for me the most interesting thing about Egypt is that they've been so good in the Afcon, and yet this has been a an exceptionally poor showing for them at the World Cup. Partially, that's obviously down to the absence of Salah up and you know I guess not necessarily up until now, but he wasn't prominent in the first game, and I think the first game is so decisive when you have this sort of group stage format that I think they're going to they're gonna change for the next World Cup. So, in, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not, like I said, I'm not entirely versed on the uh, on the <laughs> dispute between them, but I think Chris is. I was going to say, I'll, I'll try and sum up the ridiculousness of it. Uh, it appears that Salah may have fallen out with the Egyptian Football Association over a sponsorship row. Apparently the team is sponsored by one telephone communications company Salah has a deal with another and there was a bit of controversy over his likeness being featured in what is seen as a competing company's advertisements as authorized by the Egyptian FA and then of course uh, there's the fact that Salah was granted honorary citizenship by Jechnia leader Ramzan Kadrov who's yeah he's a bit of a controversial character I think it's fair to say so yeah there's a, there's a little bit of controversy going on around Salah uh, Chris uh, potentially unnecessary controversy yeah, you touched on it perfectly there. The, the, for me, I think there were almost kind of warning signs um, without wishing to overblow them for Egypt in this tournament when that whole thing came down. It, it centred, from what I could see, about, over a plane and the fact that um, Salah's image was used on that plane in an advertisement with a, a telephone company, as, who, as you rightly say, were not his official sponsors, that he already had a deal. Um, and and you got to remember, Salah is huge in Egypt. There were people writing his name into the ballot papers um, for president. So he's clearly very influential. And I think putting his image on anything is is it's going to boost your brand. So I understand why the Egyptian FA were keen to do it, whether they knew you know of what they were doing or not. But actually, I think it's taken a bit more of a a drastic turn with. Um, this chap that you mentioned there from from Chechnya, because yeah, essentially this has painted Salar in quite a bad light. The, the telecoms thing is more of a faux pas, I would say. It's not something that um, calls into question his character, because really he can kind of absolve himself because he can say, "Well, I didn't sanction any of this." Whereas when you're standing next to someone like him, posing for a photograph, all this kind of thing, and just in general, I feel like he's been made to be a bit of a an attraction almost, because there was that situation earlier in the tournament where he was. Uh, sleeping in the home team hotel. He'd been given time off to just go and rest and he was sort of dragged out of bed and brought um, to training to pose for a photograph with another one of these leaders. Um, and it, it's, to me, it just feels like the, the 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 occasion has sort of been enveloping to, to Salah. Um, and I don't feel like he's been given the best platform to succeed because of it. And it's a shame because as, as Nico touched on, for for a team that sort of regularly wins African Cup of Nations and is quite dominant in its in its region, Egypt have not been regular participants at the World Cup, um, and this felt like a very big moment because remember Salah is twenty five, twenty six now I think. So next World Cup, you would say maybe he's got definitely one more in him and a push two more in him, and and it just feels like this has been a little bit of a mess that could have been organised better. Um, and whether that impacts the results drastically in an alternate timeline, we don't know. But mm. at least it would have given them a chance to succeed. Certainly not a good look. I mean, a sponsorship row like that, yeah, it, it strikes of, of all the worst aspects of, of modern football. And then <laughs> posing alongside a, a leader who's been accused of, of human rights abuses. Yeah, it's not the best look for Mohamed Salah, let's say. Uh, also not the best look, Nico, uh, potentially. For the Russian squad, there is talk of a potential doping scandal coming down the line. Uh, this was yesterday, the Daily Mail uh, in England publishing a piece talking about how FIFA has allegedly disregarded evidence of cover-ups of doping cases in Russian football. Um, so can you explain a little bit of the context of the, the controversy that, that seems to be brewing here for around the Russian squad? 
Yeah, um, I had to dust off the old biology books uh, to kind of get a grasp on it. But yeah, supposedly they are benefiting from the practice of using recombinant blood, which is essentially just uh, you you you're being like you get an IV of what is probably your blood or another person's blood um, that is richer in iron uh, than than because when you when you when you go through these athletic processes and you breathe in and out your body naturally replenishes the iron and the nutrients that your blood uses up in different parts of your body so that happens at a certain rate what recombinant blood does is that it sort of um, circumvents that process and you get uh, what is essentially iron rich blood which helps your muscles recover faster you get it quicker because you're getting it from an exterior source, whether that be your own that's just being circulated through a process of uh, recombination or it's somebody else's. Um, that is difficult to detect because there's no actual drugs being involved in that process. So there is a, there's a, a level of investigation that needs to happen for that to be proven. But another thing that I think they've also been accused of is uh, recombinant blood through the use of erythroprotein, which is a protein that's created, I believe, in the kidneys of the pituitary gland. I forget. But that is um, that does involve drugs. You can you can kind of test for that. And it's essentially it's the same thing, except uh, you get your body creates more blood. So essentially what this all boils down to is that the Russian players can run faster for longer uh, periods of time and not be as fatigued uh, both in the game and across a long period of time. So that's kind of the thing. And that's it's difficult to detect regardless of whichever one they're doing. But yeah, that's that's the thing. And uh, there was a really good piece um, before the, the World Cup began on The Ringer from Andrew Helms who kind of talked about the, how Putin has sort of already won um, with the tournament being hosted in Russia, but it sort of got me thinking about the uh, the effects that and that how well a team does sort of on the international stage in terms of sports, how that affects the the perception that people have of that nation. And the the point that he made in the piece was that the reason that he's won, the reason that this is a victory, is because while there are significant human rights abuses going on in Russia and and persecutions of the lgbtq community in that country um the fact that the the tournament wasn't called off or there wasn't any concern about it and it's happening right now diverts that attention in a way and almost validates it from an international community that is fifa and so if you add on to that the success of a team regardless of how how they've done it you know because there are always going to be people who believe it and who don't believe it regardless of how you know what what committee comes to a decision on it you know it does boost the profile of a, of a nation that is trying to make a name for itself at this moment in history so i think the amongst all the football i know that's the thing that we probably focus the most on this podcast mm. there is a, a myriad and a dearth of political issues going on right now and russia is at the very center of that i think mm, i do find that fascinating that sort of soft power the football Afford is something we spoke about, obviously, when Neymar moved to PSG and the the aims of Qatar in that. And, yeah, this is just another example of it. But, yeah, not a great look for, for, for FIFA. Potentially they've come out and sort of rejected this report that there is a cover-up going on. Um, we wouldn't trust FIFA uh, to get to the bottom of it with any truth or any honesty. So it remains to be seen how this one develops and what news comes to light and then what information comes forward. Um, also... In more not-a-good-look news, Chris, which we get a lot of in this World Cup, um, there has been this controversy over women uh, commentating on football and presenting uh, on football coverage here in the UK. If you're not in the UK, you might not have seen that uh, the BBC have hired Alex Scott, a uh, female footballer, to be on to be a part of their coverage. We've had ITV, who've hired Enia Luco, who, of course, is one of the most successful female footballers, just moved to Juventus. She's fronting their coverage as well. And there was some controversy over the weekend where Patrice Evra appeared to, rather condescendingly, I think it's fair to say, clap Enia Luco's analysis, uh, which didn't go down too well. Um, and then today, Chris, we seem to have Jason Cundy who's a, uh, a pundit for TalkSport here in the UK, uh, described... Cundy, was that? Just Cund checking. Cundy, Cund yeah. Yeah, it's very, you've got to be careful there to avoid a Freudian slip. But yeah, Jason Cundy, uh, he seems to have his own complaints about, about female commentators, Chris. He did. I'm not going to claim to have seen it because I think Good Morning Britain is an abomination on British television. Um, 
I think Susanna Reid is lovely. Um, she actually seems to serve as the moral conscience for that program, so good for her. Um, Piers Morgan is a cretin. Um, I'm amazed he has so much of a sway in England and, and gets so much work given up. What he's really famous for is bullying people and producing fake front pages um, or fake photographs, sorry, to be more specific. Um, in the case of this, Jason Cundy argued that women's voices are too high pitched. I believe, um, and that it just didn't sound right. So I think the fact he didn't pick apart the content of what was being said by these commentators and, and pundits says a lot about him, um, because, of course, he works for TalkSport, um, who I think really care more about the quality of a voice than the content of it. Um, personally, I think it's it's absolutely ludicrous. I think the three of them in question, Vicky Sparks, Enya Luko and Alex Scott have been a, a really welcome change because I think they've recognised this is a big opportunity for women in sport in general and I think they've come prepared and they've been incredibly well informed. Um, I think having met Alex Scott a few times and having talked to her in the Ball Street office a couple of times, she's no different there as, as to how she is on television. I found it quite um, well informed interesting quite fun to talk to as well and someone who was willing to listen as much as she was willing to talk which is is quite rare for a pundit and an ex-player in general so I think she's been a welcome addition I think Cundy's apology is half-hearted I think it's an attempt to in some ways save face in other ways probably save his career um, because he's aware that that might shut him off and yet you know there was a lot of people who responded to him um, and said, you know what, power to you for speaking your voice or your opinion, which is ironic because his pinned tweet, I think, at the time of recording, is about the fact that he speaks his opinion and his voice, and he doesn't care whether you like it or not. It's all quite depressing, isn't it, I think, that it has become a bit of a debate almost, that there is this sort of uh, discussion uh, around female commentators and female pundits that you know that they aren't allowed to do their job they're not judged on the same terms I mean as you say most people I think have been impressed with the likes of Vinnie Luca and Alex Scott whereas someone like Patrice Evra seems to have pitched up in Russia had a bit of a jolly and isn't really saying anything with his punditry is sort of contributing very little um, I'm not too upset he's had to go back for pre-season by stand there I think it's fair to say um, but you know Jackie Oatley herself who's a, a presenter on the BBC she said it's frustrating that you know this debate is an issue. It's eleven years after her first match of day commentary, eight years after she was doing commentaries at the World Cup, and yet still people are trying to say it shouldn't be allowed. Almost, it feels regressive, Chris. It is frustrating, I think, more than anything, because yes, as you touched on, Patrice Evra sits at the opposite end of that spectrum as someone who has played at the highest level, has done a lot in his career and offered nothing more than chuckles and hand gestures and more of this I love this game awful shtick that he's been peddling for a long time, which to be to be frank, I don't even think it's that legit when he does that. If It feels quite fake and quite plastic. Um, but again, that's what he does on social media. When it comes to punditry, I think he's been awful. I don't think he's offered any real insight. I think he's tried to to be a jokester and a prankster and I, I don't really care for it. I, th I think, look, Ian Wright is someone that, that manages to straddle that line fairly well. Right. He likes a joke, right. He likes to laugh. Yes. I've, I've uh, worked with Ian Wright up close before, so I'm fairly familiar with him. And I think at the same time, he does give some insight. He's also been criticized for laying on cliche before. And I know he's made efforts to fix that. I just think in general, you know, we are, at a stage with football where we've never had more access to information, to opinions, to insight, all this stuff. And I just think we should be demanding more. And I think the real problem that Jason Cundy and his ilk have is that the likes of Enya Luko and Alex Scott are willing to go away and do the research that he doesn't want to do. Because Enya Luko, I know she's been criticised for feeling almost robotic and a little bit wooden, She's at least gone and done her research. She's at least looked players up. She's she's actually tried to understand what she doesn't understand going into the tournament when it comes to certain teams and players. And I've got nothing but respect for that because it takes time. And this is the thing when it comes to any kind of research is that whether you pay someone to do it for you or you do it yourself, at least it gets done and at least you're coming into the 
situation without trying to just move through it. And I think, look, there are certain pundits that I think don't know everything about the situation that they go into. Ali McCoyce is a good example, but Ali McCoyce is a fantastic pundit because he's not super serious. He's quite lighthearted. He sees the positive in the situation. He's always willing to give the attacking player a bit of credit and he bounces well off his core commentator. Whereas there are certain other pundits that I'm not going to name that just don't do that. And I think at this point, I appreciate if you have a preference that is, you know what, I just don't like the way it sounds. That's fine. But I think the notion that you should then subsequently ban any and all female commentators and all this stuff, that's just ridiculous. I think, I think, unfortunately, and I've held this opinion for a while and not really voiced it publicly, sport isn't, when it comes to the media side, always a meritocracy. And it's one of the things that frustrates me more than anything because it really should be. On the pitch, if you perform well, you get success. Off it, if you actually know your stuff and all that, you're not always rewarded. And I think it's it's one thing that really has to change. And I appreciate that there will be people that find that opinion insufferable. To be frank, I don't really care. If I can also just say, um, you know, I, I think a lot of the every, every single point that you and you and uh, Adam made there, Chris, I, I find to be in agreement with. But the, the difficulty I find sometimes with the conversation that we have, and I think what's important to to have as part of a conversation is, especially as someone that studies political philosophy, is like changing the minds of the people that are on the opposite end of the spectrum, right? So we have those people who have the opinion that women shouldn't be in commentary positions. And I have no shame in admitting that in my juvenile years, when I was 15, 16, 17 years old, I was of a similar opinion because it was just, uh, you know, it's like a hyper-masculine type of, uh, you know, just standard opinion that you think women shouldn't be all that involved in sport. But it's important, I think, to acknowledge that part of the conversation instead of saying, you know, you, you know, just di- dis dismissing it because I think that's the thing that maybe turns people off. Maybe there are even people who are listening to this podcast that say, you know, I have the opinion and I don't want it to be dismissed. I think the reason that we would we would all say that we believe that women should be a part of the conversation, that everybody should be a part of the conversation in every facet of work is because they deserve they deserve as much of a chance to be a part of that. You you rightly touched on um, you know, the, the women that do an excellent job in their commentating positions and their football media positions because they do the work. And there is so much of a dynamic that goes into that where not only do they, when they get the position, are they often a tokenistic representation of that, of who is there, right? So they're the only woman in the office or the, they're the only woman on the panel, or they're just the presenter. They're, they're simply the vehicle for another man's thought. They, have to do all of that without failure, without, you know, without the, without exception, without, because if they do any of that and they mess up in the smallest way, then it's not only a, a, a representation of themselves and the jobs that they do, but it's a representation of how men specifically will think that women perform in those positions. So there's so much that goes into that. I think the the reason that we should acknowledge the other part of the conversation is because there is we have to do that in order to try to convince them that, yes, women should be part of the conversation because they do as good of a job as men do, if not better. And just because, you know, you want to hear maybe a deeper voice, maybe a more masculine voice on the commentary doesn't mean that the female voice is illegitimate. And we have to look at how a lot of sport, especially football, is marketed towards men. It can be marketed towards women as well. It can be that's the whole point of the World Cup, as you said, I think in the tweets on the on the front three account, is that it's inclusive and women should feel like they have a, a sense of representation, a sense of uh, you know someone being there as well that they can enjoy it with instead of just other men because it's easier to bond with your with the same sex or this you know someone that looks like you. So I think that's the important thing I want to push across is that you may feel that way now because it's just a a, a standard, you know, masculine thing to say, ah, I really want to hear women on the comms, but you know, you'd be surprised at how much insight you, you can gain from anyone on the commentary. And I think it's important to acknowledge that. So. I think it's a good point you make as well. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. 
no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Because, you know, in culture and in, in sports culture, things aren't necessarily black and white. Things are always evolving. Things are always progressing. And these conversations, these discussions that we're having, that everyone's having in a, in a wider sense about the likes of Jason Cundy and female pundits, etc., those are the, the redrawings of the line, if you will. And that is the conversation moving on. And that is accommodating new voices and, and sort of moving along with the cultural conversation, which is so interesting. I will I will say that is something I, I said on the Twitter account for anyone that is unsure. Yeah, that was me because usually the opinionated stuff is me. And it's true. I find it so weird that we're all so desperate to like take stuff away from people. Like we all know who started that daft conquer after beer the other day. And he's got a habit for that stuff as Miguel. And I like Miguel's work a lot. And I would say it to him if I saw him as well, because I've, I've been in this company a few times, Miguel. But like stuff like that, it's just so... I find it so weird that we're celebrating the World Cup. What was the... the... Essentially, the point was that, oh, you know, Panama are proof as to why you should take a spot off CONCACAF. And it's like, well, no, because this is huge for them. Panama, as a a footballer nation, are growing. Their youth teams are performing better within the region at U20, U17 level. And just because they lost by six goals to one doesn't mean you strip a, a region of a place because... What did Costa Rica did four years ago? They went and beat England, Italy, Uruguay to the in the group stages, and then you know almost ran Holland as as all the way through to to penalties. And it, it's just this weird fascination with, oh, this is wrong. This is what's wrong. Let's fix this. Let's take this away. Where for me personally, surely the point of the World Cup, by its very definition, is the world comes together. And I think, you know what, if you earned your spot in the World Cup through qualifying... You earned it. You earned it. In the same way that in the year of our Lord 2018, I should be able to hear women commentate and women talk on the game, especially to senior England internationals with more caps than a load of the professionals, including Jason Cundy, who, to my knowledge, I don't think represent England at all, if not further than youth level. So... Again, it goes back to the meritocracy thing. They earned their spot in the World Cup in the same way that those pundits earned their spot. Because I, I'm going to sound like a right name drop here. Vicky Sparks usually works in the Northeast. So again, she's someone I've had the odd conversation with in Sunderland's press room in Newcastle. And she is very diligent and very good at what she does. And really good when it comes to asking questions and responding to the situation. And my worry is, is that the second one of these pundits makes a mistake, it will be jumped on like a pack of wolves saying, oh, well, you know, she got this player's name wrong or she made this mistake. So, you know, it's, it's ridiculous that they're allowed to even do this. No, it's it's really not. And I'm sorry if you feel that way and I'm sorry if it affects your sensibilities. But I think it's time to just grow up a bit. Well, let's move on to, uh, to talk about some on-the-pitch action. So much football, exciting football that went on on the weekend. Let's start with, I mean, we mentioned Panama there. They did lose 6-1 to England, all but confirming football's coming home, Nico. Uh, it was a very convincing result, but was it a convincing performance for you, 6-1 against Panama? Uh, it's from an analytics perspective, it wasn't as convincing as their win against Tunisia. Um, they didn't actually put up that great in numbers. It was a interesting game. It was basically even. Obviously, there was a few penalties in there that they can that. Um, Panama, Panama were were at fault for conceding, but I think um, the English hype train is catching a lot of steam, and I'm happy to see it. <laughs> it's slightly tongue in cheek. I think it's I will good. Say, slightly tongue in cheek. <laughs> I think I I think it slightly. is slightly tongue in cheek, but I think there is that tendency within the English public to start start that stuff out as a joke. I think there was the I don't know if it was a Nike advert, but it was an advert certainly for something that kind of um illustrated a future where England do win the World Cup. Mm. Raheem Sterling's face gets put on the, you know, the 10, 
10 pound and Harry Kane gets knighted and all this stuff yes. happens. And I think it's, it is with a sense of jest, but, and I think there is a, a, a reason to be saying that as you're saying, football's coming home. They're a very good team. They're flexible. I've talked about how much I've been impressed with them. And I think Gareth Southgate has a very good idea of what he should be doing to make this team successful. At the same time, I would worry a little bit because we haven't necessarily seen them play the best of the opposition, and we will. Because in the final game, as, as in terms of the decider of who tops that group, we have England versus Belgium, and that would be the performance that I would say, okay, if England come away clear winners on that one, if they put a really good performance in, then I would say maybe football is coming home. But <laughs> Tunisia and, and, and Panama, mm. with all due respect to them, and especially Tunisia, who I think really played into their hands by high-pressing England, who did really well to play out of it, um, I think I think just let's hold let's pump the brakes a little bit on the coming home <laughs> i think it's fair it's a fair assessment there chris i mean it has become a bit of a, a running joke in england football's coming home everyone you run into is fully on the hype train with tongue firmly in cheek there is that optimism though there is that that sense that you know this is an england team we can finally get behind there is that likability about them there has been a big sort of pr push by gareth southgate in the team which means everyone seems to be on side but they're playing Attacking football, they're playing exciting football. Harry Kane, of course, has scored five goals. He's leading that race for the Golden Boot. Um, do you think they're going to get a reality check against Belgium, though? Do you think that is going to be the true test of England, as Nico says? That's where we get the measure of this team and we really can assess how far they can go and how good they are. Um, yeah, to a certain extent, I think it will be... Um, a, the greatest test, w without doubt, um, because yeah, Tunisia are, I would say, just a higher quality version of Panama, really, um, with maybe a little bit less dirty. Um, I think that was something that did impress me, though, was that the England players responded to that quite physical and aggressive play um, in a really positive way. And I think in general, across those two games, they're set pieces. I mean, you look at John Stone's second goal. That was a really well-organised set piece. And I think the fact that Gareth Southgate has talked to basketball coaches to try and take lessons from that. There's a, a modern approach to the coaching now that I think presents itself firstly with the way that the team plays and the way that the team is, is set up in its formation and how flexible it is that is really refreshing after... Um, Roy Hodgson and to a lesser extent Sam Allardyce, two very old school traditional coaches that I think have very old school ways, shall we say? They're very defined. They're not looking to maybe embrace all the all the more modern approaches that you could think of. Um, and at the same time, I think yeah, Nico's totally right. The the expected goals numbers were not great. I don't think England really created anything that was too incisive in open play. Um, I think they found a ball in behind for the penalty or the first penalty, excuse me. And then Jesse Lingard's goal, which was just a nice little one-two touch piece of, of skill between him and Sterling. This is where I think with Belgium, you're going to see a team that will not sit nearly as deep as, as either of the previous opponents. So we'll essentially give them a greater test defensively, but should also give them an opportunity to flourish in an attacking sense. And that for me is the thing that I'm sort of focusing on most specifically if Roberto Martinez plays Yannick Ferreira-Carrasco because um, even Diego Simeone wouldn't trust him as a wide player because he didn't think he could do defensively what he needed to. And I think if you look at his performances already, he's left some pretty gaping holes for Jan Vertonghen to take care of. Um, and I think if he does that again, hopefully it's Danny Rose because I'm not a huge fan of Ashley Young as a left wing-back or left whatever. Um that's something that could be exploited. So, yeah, I'm, I'm actually quite eager because they, they get to play without pressure really as well because they're, they're already through. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how Belgium line up in that game coming up on Thursday, Nico, uh, obviously against Tunisia, a very attacking team. Saw them win 5-2. Roberto's... Uh, Roberto Martinez has suggested he could rest a few players in this game against the Free Lions. Uh, is that a bit of mind game? Should you expect them to, to potentially rotate the squad a little bit? I think they should. I think Chris is rightly saying there. There's there's some space uh, there for England to exploit because not all of the positions I think specifically defensively for Belgium are entirely set. But you want the top spot 
regardless because there is a very strong as you were saying and all this kind of goes towards the intangibles PR push for England to have this sense of momentum because I think more than any other country really does the expectation of the public weigh into the minds of the players weigh into the mind of the of the coach so I, I think regardless of who you're going to face in the in the next round I think a, a showing against Belgium is necessary and I think the space is there for exploitation so I, I would hope to see some rotation because as he was saying there I don't I don't think Ashley Young is is the best option and I I think even though you know they're getting a feel for their squad we talked about the level of flexibility that they have by playing different guys maybe Delph in midfield isn't the who you want to start and depending on who's fit you know i think Deli Ali is probably a non-negotiable starter because i think he's such a key part of that system as is as is Harry Kane um you know you you want to find your best 11 and i think that probably incorporates Danny Rose as well as a few other guys so yeah i think they need to test out their best formation uh against belgium and not their not just their best formation but their best 11 um for that formation so yeah it is shaping up very nicely in group h which is where england's round of 16 opponents will be coming from uh japan currently top of the group they had a thrilling draw against senegal Two all it finished in the end. Colombia as well, switching it on in their second game against Poland, winning 3-0. Obviously, to be determined who's going to sort of finish top of this group, who's going to be going through, who England could be facing. But they're going to be scared of some of these teams, do you think, Chris? I mean, Japan are looking decent so far. Colombia, as I say, have switched it on. There's going to be cause for concern for England going into this round, no matter whether they finish first or second, potentially. Yeah, I mean, look, every every team that's that reaches that stage has performed well to to a varying degree. I think <clears throat> if I was picking personally, I find Colombia a greater threat than Japan. Um, I think the use of James and Juan Quintero is a lot more dangerous than than what Japan has to offer. And yet, I, st- I still think that with Inui and and Kagawa, there is something to to be mindful of with Japan at least. But I see a lot more frailty in their defensive uh, line than I do with Colombia, with Yeri Mina and, and Devinson Sanchez. Um, and then even, I mean, Santiago Arias is, is a, a good right back coming off a good season with PSV. So, yeah, I think you're always going to have to play good teams. That That's kind of bordering on cliche when it comes to tournaments. Um, that's the deal. I that's think the, the important thing is... Yeah, I think the important thing to focus on is that actually when it comes to the teams in question, I see where England can cause them problems because of the style that they have laid out and because of how clear the identity is for this team tactically and what they want to do. And that's a real difference for me when it comes to to other tournaments. It was something that um, Rio Ferdinand talked about the other night was that when Sven-Goran Eriksson became England manager, he told him in no uncertain terms, my centre-backs don't bring the ball out. And so he had to change the way he played to accommodate his position in the England team and and to keep his place in the England team, more importantly. I don't see that with the current group. If anything, I feel as if Gareth has sort of put together a side that, or a style, I should say, that that plays into the strengths of the fact that John Stones likes to bring the ball out from defence, that Kyle Walker is someone that's comfortable on the ball and that the fullbacks, again, they want to, uh, the wingbacks, excuse me, they want to attack and they're encouraged to attack. In the same way that, that Jesse Lingard and, and Ali and whoever is playing in those positions likes to float around the field and likes to roam. So I see a lot of ideals that are already within these players to begin with that Gareth has managed to facilitate and put together. And I think for that alone, you should feel more confident about England in the knockouts than oh, like he could go all the way back to uh, 2002 when they faced Brazil and, and yeah. Seaman got lobbed. It's, 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 it's strange feeling optimistic about England for the first time in a decade or so. It's, it's an unusual feeling. Don't worry. It'll um, come back. But, yeah, but the, I think the it's understandable to feel back. optimistic, though, because you've got to remember, you know, the the under-20s won the, the World Cup, the under-17s won um, a similar tournament. We're talking about Phil Foden being a once-in-a-generation talent. Jaden Sancho is making waves at Dortmund. Um, there was a, a young English lad whose name's escaped me who's at Chelsea who's now in talks with RB Leipzig. English players... And from speaking to coaches in the game, they're seen very highly, this next generation of talent. There's there's a lot of 
potential within it and they, they feel as if this is a potentially special generation of players. So I think the the optimism is founded because the optimism is actually founded on something. It's not just, well, you know, Gerard and Lampard are playing for Chelsea and Liverpool. It's actually, hang on, these players are playing at a high standard internationally, beating their counterparts, and they're all coming through squads with, with very keen uh, ideas that fit within what the national team want to do. And a lot of the club teams are influencing what the national team does. I read a great piece by Nico Morales that said that Tottenham <laughs> have had a huge influence on the English national team. So Amen. that synergy, whether planned or spontaneous, that's a reason in itself to, to start singing football's coming home. So you're telling me not only is football coming home, Chris, but it's coming home again and again and again in the years to come. That's basically what you're saying. And and uh, dominated by a Tottenham-heavy uh, core. How can it get better like? for you, Adam? How could that like? get better for you? Um, <laughs> before we go, um, we would be remiss not to discuss uh, one of the most dramatic moments in the World Cup so far on Saturday evening. It has been a glorious, entertaining World Cup, of course, but I think one of the moments so far, as I mentioned there, was the dying minutes of Germany, Sweden on Saturday evening. One all it was in those closing stages. It was looking very tricky for Germany to go through from Group F, realistically. Um, but then Tony Kroos steps up Nico, sweeps in a glorious free kick. Oh, man. That's the, the moments of the tournament, right? I mean, Crazy. it could not have got better <laughs> for Tony Cruz. I think a lot of people, there was there was a very mixed opinions about Tony Cruz's performance in general. And I think the dynamic that he struck and Real Madrid really has allowed him to strike with Luka Modric is one of the things that I think we'll look back at and say, that's probably one of the greatest, if not the uh, greatest midfield duo of all time because of how they play off of one another. But as I've said on this podcast before, he hasn't had the opportunity to strike that with um, his national team. And obviously they've had success in 2014. They were the winners. But in this World Cup, it's been a little bit different. And that's to something to an extent that I wrote about. Germany has have faced a stylistic a disadvantage against Mexico, who are a competent defensive team, against Sweden, who can press effectively, and they have players on the counter, specifically Emil Forsberg, which I think, you know, maybe they don't have the best striking talents, but as a player who played in a pressing system and knows kind of when re to release that final ball as to when to best affect um, the defenders and the opposing team, you have a really talented opposition. And that came through in the game, not just only on the eye test, but on the expected goals as well. It was only 1.5 to 1.4, which is basically the same thing from an analytical perspective. So you have Germany who have to pick a more intricate lock in order to be successful than, than Sweden, who can essentially just benefit from a moment of luck or be very efficient on a counterattack and enjoy the success that they did. Then to have that, you know, completely canceled out by a brilliant moment from Tony Cruz in the final dying moments is, I think, the reason that we all watch the game. Um, so I think as Germany move forward, we'll continue to see them get better because I think they'll go up against opponents and they'll have this, this, these moments of, you know, brilliance and, and success um, that they'll be able to play off of. And so we'll see the more of the Germany that we know to be. But yeah, it's been a really difficult go for them in these early stages because of how the other teams have played against them. And I, I honestly feel bad because I don't think that there's really much that they can do. If there's anything significant that I can point to is that the biggest change for me from game one to game two is that Mesut Ozil, who Arsenal do press from the front, Yes, but I don't think I would point to Arsenal as an exemplary pressing team. He was clearly in charge of coordinating the pressing actions off the ball for uh, for the game against Mexico. Obviously, he didn't play this game. Uh, Sebastian Rudy, who eventually broke his nose in that game, um, was a significant part of midfield. But yeah, I think a lot of their success, even if they're going to play this highly attacking, high-line football kind of style... Um, relies on who partners Tony Cruz in midfield. And I think that's the key for Germany going forward is their ability to negate those things and to counterpress effectively so that teams just, you know, don't get lucky on the counterattack. I think we have one more thing, though, Go to on. talk about. Um, the Serbia game. Oh, the uh, Switzerland players. Uh, they, uh, Granit Xhaka and... Wowie. Uh, Granit Xhaka and... and uh, What's his name? Jordan Shakiri. Mm. They they put up their hands sort of in the Albanian wing formation or symbol um, because they are Albanian. Um, they play for the Serbian national team, but obviously I think 
because of events that I'm not particularly versed on, they cannot play for Albania or they couldn't play for Albania. So they decided to play for Switzerland and they face now two match bans because of that. And I think from what I've heard, it's, it's relatively not unwarranted, but there have been some horrible events that have happened to the people of Albania and specifically probably people that they know or to some extent feel an attachment to because of a sense of nationalism. And for for them to be given two match bans because of that, I think is pretty egregious from FIFA. I had actually heard that they've been given no ban, that it had been confirmed. No ban? Cause, okay. Because well. that actually was one of the problems facing FIFA was essentially... They were going to have to rule on, as you sort of alluded to there, a really complex conflict yes, um, that has reared its head before in football. If you think back to the Serbia-Albania game with the um, drone that hovered over the pitch um, and every kind of ruckus that that caused. The, the whole conflict with Serbia and Kosovo and Albania is a very complex one. And it's a shame we don't have Lawrence here because he's, I, I know he wouldn't say he's very well versed, but he certainly knows a lot more. Um, than I do about it and kind of the nuances of it, if you will. Um, it, I don't want to go into it too much because I think it shows a kind of worms as much to say that there was a reason it annoyed Serbians because they feel one way about um, a conflict that Kosovans and I think Albanians deem a genocide. I'm not espousing an opinion either way because I don't know enough about it, to be very frank. Um, but I am going to read more of, of it off the back of this to be more well-versed about it. Um, but yes, that that celebration was essentially ruled not to be political, which I think is part of the Serbians' argument that actually there's nothing else it could be. Um, yeah, yeah. That if, and I think yeah, that that's probably the most. The, that's like we take a step back from maybe football for a second. We say like, you know, FIFA has a very difficult job, and I think I have no soft spot for FIFA in my mind. But I think oftentimes with agencies that are part of giving you know, adjudicating a decision about certain things. It's an extremely difficult thing to do because on one hand, I think you have a case from the, the, the people of Serbia and those who uh, feel a nationalistic pride for their country to say, okay, how can that not, not be political? But at the same time, you know, judging on these affairs is such a difficult thing. And I think, you know, there there are, uh, uh, I think, a myriad of, of issues that uh, FIFA have had to rule on in terms of people showing displays of affection for their country and that in turn has offended people from other countries because of the 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 violent history between those two things and for fifa to have to adjudicate between those two things i think is a probably incredibly difficult thing to do so it's just interesting to kind of look at it from an outside perspective and not the football one well, there is more drama on the way. Argentina are getting knocked out tomorrow night. Uh, confirmed. <laughs> they're not. Uh, <laughs> they're not. That's not going to happen against Nigeria. That's not going to happen. Uh, we'll see. I, I hope not. I hope we'll not. see. Uh, we've got uh, more action on Wednesday as well. Of course, we'll be back on Thursday uh, for England-Belgium when England, no doubt, confirm that football is indeed <laughs> coming out. Uh, until then, Nico, where can the listeners find you? They can find me uh, at the Front Three Twitter account, where you can find my articles uh, that I'll, you know, be posting on my own Twitter, but will always be retweeted by the, the account because <laughs> yeah, I do it myself. That. So. Yeah, that's weird. Uh, Chris, <laughs> what about you? Uh, on on Twitter, espousing opinions under the guise of the Front Three. Um, <laughs> there, there is one last bit of news though, which is Come the on. Saudi Arabian FA have opted to. Um, tax footballers' wages, Saudi Arabian players' wages at fifty percent, and impose a salary cap in the wake of their departure from the World Cup. Wow, um, really? Which sounds on paper terrible and and very uh, authoritarian, but actually, I learned from reading um, a little bit more on it that Saudi Arabian players currently are not taxed on their wages; are essentially paid a king's ransom to play domestically and that in the eyes of some fans has bred a complacency and a laziness amongst Saudi Arabian players um, and I think this probably follows on the back of their concerted efforts to place a number of players in La Liga um, to try and just increase the quality and all this so they have introduced I believe it's three categories of, um, of salary cap for these players so it's it's going to change Saudi Arabian football it would seem pretty drastically um, during the next sort of few years and I guess we'll see if it has any sort of positive effect on, on the national team because they think that in the mid 90s when, when Saudi Arabia were uh, a better national team 
it was because the players were paid less because so it's it's almost a return um based on sort of historical accomplishment and the factors that they believe caused that this world cup's got it all taxation reform we've got political controversy var madness there's nothing that's not going on in this world cup so make sure you tune in thursday for more madness i'm sure uh, but guys we'll see you then until then enjoy the world cup football Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.